in the grand scheme of things, in the big picture, is this, are these few years really going to be that big of a deal? But who I become in the process is a big deal. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, I'm super excited because we have Chris Miles with us. Chris is known as the cash flow expert and the anti-financial advisor. And he's a leading authority in teaching entrepreneurs and professionals how to get their money working for them today versus in the future. He's helped his personal clients increase their cash flow by over $200 million in the past 10 years. And beyond that, he is an author, podcast host of the Chris Miles Money Show, and has been featured on US News and CNN Money. So I'm just going to stop there because there's a lot I can learn from Chris and just say, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be on, Matt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Chris, we like to start everybody with the difficult questions. What's your favorite ice cream? Oh, dude, I'm one of those people like I have to be in the mood. Like there's always a mood, right? I would say generally though, speaking lately, it's been anything that's kind of vanilla based with like chocolate, like chunks. So it could be something with like Heath or Snickers in it, something like that, you know, or, you know, or even like sometimes moose tracks, you know, something, something just chunky that I can eat into. I love it. Jerry's by the way, is almost in general, my favorite ice cream. I love it. I love it. It gives it a little different texture too. When you have a little bit of a heat bar in there or Snickers, especially, yeah. Especially when you have like Americone dream or something like that. It's like, it's so good. Yeah. I, now are you a cone or a bowl? I'm definitely more, more of a cone guy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I like it. I like it. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yeah. Well, you mentioned it like I'm the anti-financial advisor, right? Like I'm basically, you know, podcast host, you know, the Chris Miles money show. I'm, I'm teaching people how to get out of the rat race. Um, so they don't have to work for 5 billion years, you know, like it's get your money working for you. So you don't have to keep working for money, you know, that sort of thing. I love it. Well, you have a background in real estate and I kind of want to go back to the beginning. Where did your real estate journey begin? After I did everything wrong, <laughs> that's, that's pretty much, you know, I started like in, in just after nine uh, 11, right. I actually started being a traditional mainstream financial advisor. I uh, did that for four years. And then as time went on, even though I didn't want to admit it at the time, I started to realize it didn't really work for people. Like people really weren't becoming financially free, right? Like, and in fact, it took a guy that was a real, that left being a financial advisor that became a real estate investor. And four months later, him and his dad partnered on some deals and doubled his dad's income as a professor at the local university. And of course, when he told me that, I was like, come on, man, that's too good to be true, right? He's like, hey, we're doing it. Whether you like it or not, we're doing it. And so we got in this argument about what's better, stocks or real estate. And he finally just stopped me and said, Chris, how many of your clients are actually financially free off of these investments? And he's like, and like, not worried about money, not retired. I'm not saying that. I mean, like they're free. And I said, well, none. Because if you watch CNN, you're never free, right? Because you know, you're going to be freaking out about the sky falling. He's like, well, good job, Chris. Way to help nobody. All right. Well, how about this, Chris? How many of you guys as financial advisors are free, not off the commissions you're earning, but actually doing these mutual fund investments? And I said, well... None. Now, maybe this one guy is. And I found out later he wasn't either, right? He was actually just, you know, all show. And, uh, and then some of these guys have been working in this industry for, since the late 70s, and they weren't financially free either. So it kind of was this big aha for me. And I said, well, none. He's like, well, there's your problem. I said, well, tell me the answer. He's like, I won't because you just got to argue with me. So I don't want to tell you anything. I'm like, come on, man, like, give me something. So he told me to go read this book, Who Took My Money by Robert Kiyosaki, right? It's a lesser known rich dad book. 
it just means that if you go the summary of it, it basically says that mutual funds suck, right? They're horrible. And here's why. And then he said, go listen to this radio show put on by these two real estate investors locally here in the state of Utah. I said, all right, I'll do that. And this is the beginning of 2006. And by March of 06, I just knew I could no longer be a financial advisor. I was done. I was like, I can't do it anymore. I can't be in integrity and tell people they're going to be financially free because I've already seen by the numbers, by the proof, and even from seeing people that I've inherited as clients from decades of advice, they're not financially free. So it's proven that this stuff doesn't work. And that's when I started to leave it. I said, I'll never teach about money again. I'm done. I will just go be a mortgage broker, um, do a little bit of stock trading and, and be, you know, start doing a, like teaching ballroom dancing at the local university. Right. And so that's what I did. And, uh, but I still had to know what these guys knew. And so I started to learn like how they did things with real estate. Uh, they were more doing flips, right? There were more flippers and things like that. But just from getting that concept down about cash flow being the key thing, not just accumulating money, like I was trying to do as, a, as an investor or really not as an investor, as a saver in the uh, stock market, I realized, oh, it's about cash flow. And once that, that formula hit my brain, it became so much easier. And by the summer of 2006, I was able to be financially independent myself, almost 28, almost 29 years old thinking, well, now what am I going to do? What am I going to do with the rest of my life? Because, you know, everybody I know that are my friends are working their tails off, you know, working the nine to five. And, and that's where 2007 later, I decided I was going to come out of retirement, so to speak, and teach people how to do what I did, you know, before I had to, you know, go through the recession, get my butt kicked. Yeah. So um, were you doing flips at that time? I was doing some with flips, but I was starting to hold. I was doing long-term holds too, doing some of that. I even helped some people uh, broker some deals and things like that, even though I wasn't a broker, a real estate broker, but I was like teaching them like, hey, if you do it this way, then you can do this and start getting cash flow from this. And so we're trying to do some creative real estate type stuff. And between that and then also, well, my old business, right? I was a financial advisor, but I stopped doing that. Um, but I was a mortgage broker. And uh, one, of the, one of those guys gave me the idea. He said, Chris, do you like doing mortgages? I said, well, I like getting the results. I like teaching people. I don't like doing the paperwork. So he said, well, Chris, why don't you find somebody who does like doing the paperwork and let them do that and just split the commissions? I said, well, people do that? Will people actually do paperwork and be happy? He said, yeah. And so uh, we did that. And, uh, and so in addition to doing the real estate, then I started like referring to this guy that was like the, the paper nerd. I was like, Hey, I'll have them like, well, I'll give you, I'll tell you which, which loan to do, or but you just match them up, get everything done on the underwriting side. And that's that split at 50, 50. So I'd spend a half an hour or so with the client. They say, no a month or so later, I get a check for like 1500 bucks. I'm like, well, dang, that was easy. You know? And, and by the way, I only needed 3,500 a month to be financially independent because it was I had a young family at the time. So it was really easy. So it didn't take much more than a few things. I was working a couple hours a week. I'm like, whoa, like, how did I do that? You know, how is it so easy where I worked my tail off as a financial advisor, trying to make ends meet being paycheck to paycheck. And here I am, you know, essentially like spending a few time teaching people, a few things, doing a little bit of real estate. And there I am, you know, so yep. that's kind of how I did it. It was like those two different, uh, almost branches. Yeah. And what I think you're really talking about too, is your best and highest use of your time, right? Um, yeah. there's a big concept out there by Dan Sullivan. It's who, not how you don't need to think, how am I going to do everything? You just need to find the people who will do those things for you in your business. And this is a perfect situation of your highest and best use of your time is not filling out paperwork. So let me find somebody who does that. Yeah. 
Well, you mentioned cash flow versus appreciation. And I would say my life really, or my trajectory and my financial future really started changing when I understood this concept. Could you break that down a little bit to us? Like why, why was cash flow more important than appreciation and what helped you trigger that mindset shift? Yeah. You know, so after I got out of the rat race, right. Then I'm getting like stir crazy. Cause I'm like, I gotta do something, you know? And so I'm like, looking. I'm almost trying to force myself to find products for the next big deal to create even more money. You know, and it was just, it was just like a game. And so I stopped, I took my eye off the prize of cash flow, right? Of just regular recurring passive income coming in. I started focusing on more on appreciation. And uh, because, I mean, think about it, even the, the real estate programs out there, you don't see too many bragging saying like, hey, how would you like to have an extra three or $400 a month, you know, versus someone that says, hey, I just made 50 grand or hundred grand off this flip, right? Like then the dollar signs that sells. So I started getting obsessed by the dollar signs. And uh, when the recession hit, it kicked my butt. And about everybody else I was coaching, because I was coaching other real estate professionals, right? And they were all flipping too. And so once, once the values started coming down and everything else, uh, I mean, everybody was going broke. And, uh, and that was the thing. I was thinking, well, hey, I can buy a $100,000 property. If it goes up 10% appreciation, I make 10 grand. But if I buy a $500,000 property, I'll make 50 grand. So let's do that dumbest thing ever, right? I took my eye off of what really worked and got, got greedy. And that cost me big time. I didn't file for bankruptcy, but I did go over a million dollars in debt eventually. And I had to dig out of that hole with no money and no credit. Um, so that's what I mean by that. Like, and right now people are a bit by that same bug, right? Because everything's appreciating so much in the last year. It's like, even if you have a, even if you, uh, even if you're working on doing like a renovation project, right? If you're doing a renovation project, even if you screw up on the numbers, you know, it takes long enough, you'll make money anyways. And that happened in 2006 too. People were getting sloppy. And so when all of a sudden things stopped growing so much, then it's like Warren Buffett, when he said, it's when the tide rolls out that you realize who's swimming naked, right? And that's what I see happening with real estate. Like, I'm not saying that real estate's going to depreciate like it did in the last recession, because it's only done that once in the last six recessions. But uh, what, if it does stop going up, people that are banking and needing appreciation will find themselves in a really world of hurt. So after I dug out of that hole, I was able to become financially independent again by 2016, by the end of that year. And this time around, I was much wiser. Everything was about cash flow. To me, boring was sexy. Cash flow was sexy. I didn't care about the big numbers. It was always about getting those base hits, not the home runs, right? I didn't want to strike out again. So I started getting a lot of base hits to get to that point. And, and that's the thing I try to teach my clients too, is that guys, you can make a lot of money on this stuff and that's great, but really focus on the cash flow, the day in, day out, what's going to make you can make you money. And especially when we had 2020 happen, when there's all these non-essential businesses and talk of maybe shutting down real, certain real estate investment, you know, options and things like that. You don't want to be caught in that game where you're just an active transactional, transactionally wealthy real estate guy, right? You want to be somebody who actually has passive income coming in regardless, even if your business gets shut down. Yeah. I like to say real estate is a get rich slowly scheme and yeah. it, it really is about hitting those singles and doubles. And if you hit a home run along the mm -hmm. way, that's great, but you shouldn't base your entire business and your financial future around hitting home runs every single time, because then you'll be like Babe Ruth who ended up leading the, the MLB and strikeouts because of that. Um, yep. and the, it's money the way, ball in action, isn't it? Yep, that's exactly <laughs> it. That's exactly it. And the way I really think about it too, is like your bills are due every single month. 
So mm -hmm. why not set up your financial income coming in every single month versus that big lump sum? Because I know I'm in sales and in business um, and in sales, you see that you can be betting on those big time lump sum checks that all of a sudden the rug gets pulled out of you. And then what do you have? So it's mm -hmm. really about keeping that little trickle along the way. And then hopefully you get a big home run that just accelerates you forward. Um, yeah. I, I want to talk though, because you made a comment earlier about mutual funds and how you kind of saw a different aspect of mutual funds um, and started shifting more towards real estate. I am a guy that has a, a net worth in both equities and in real estate. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a place for both of them. But what uh -huh. helped you kind of shed your, your mind on um, mutual funds in, in, in overall? Yeah, because mutual funds are really high risk and mediocre returns. You know, like they, re they really don't have a whole lot of positive to them. I mean, the, the, I say the one positive would be is that they're liquid. You can get money out quickly, right? Yep. But with equities, you know, you can buy and sell day to day, you know, so that's the nice thing. But there are no tax advantages, really. I mean, if you really think about it, like getting a Roth IRA is not a tax advantage, right? That's, that's a high-risk vehicle you're trying to use to cover up the fact that stocks and bonds have zero tax benefit, right? They also, like I said, they're high-risk, mediocre returns. I mean, the, the S&P 500, like more people are starting to say, to heck with all these mutual fund money managers because they're making less than the stock market. The S&P 500, though, in the last 30 years has only had a real rate of return, a real average return in 30 years of 8.4%. That's nothing to really brag about, right? And that's after now we're in the 13th up year in a row, which we've never seen in stock market history here. We've never seen it go up 13 years in a row like it has, where previously I thought it was amazing when we went up six years in a row, which was like from, you know, actually the 1990s, the late 90s, the mid to late 90s until 2000 was straight up. That was a record breaker. Now we've busted past that way more than double the average return for the 30 years. What do you think is going to happen, right? So it's not that you can't do it, but you shouldn't bank all your wealth on that strategy. You should view the stock market kind of like Bitcoin, right? Where I've got a little bit of Bitcoin, but if I lose it all, it's not going to make a difference. Like I'm still going to be financially okay. But with stocks, you know, and bonds and all that stuff, I mean, just such low returns, no tax benefits. Where with real estate, I can take less risk. I can control my risk. And I can even I can even do turnkey real estate investing where I don't even manage the stupid thing, right? I just own it, collect the rent, and I'll still make way better returns, way better than anything the stock market will give you, anything that a financial advisor will even try to promise you because they can't promise anything, right? Legally. But uh, but still, if I can make at least a, you know, a bad year, 20% rate of return on my real estate and on a good year, 50 plus percent, I mean, that's just, uh, that's to me is a no brainer. Yeah. And it goes back to appreciation versus cash flow too. I find that mm -hmm. real estate as a whole is usually more cash flow efficient than a stock, right? And um, to your point not, about not being able to control it, look, if you were short GameStop at the beginning of the year, that was probably <laughs> the right position to take until some people yeah. on the internet got a hold of it, right? And mm -hmm. the fact that you can't really control how others perceive that stock, fortunately it worked out for those that were holding GameStop, but there were a lot of people on the other side of that that, that always makes me a little bit worried. And then you also yeah. made a point that you said 8.4 is the actual rate of return. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of financial advisors out there that will pitch the average rate of return. Yeah. Can you talk about a little bit about the difference between actual and average? Yeah. So there's a quote, uh, many people have said it, but I remember Ben Stein, the guy from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, that says Bueller, yeah. Bueller, right? <laughs> and the clear eye guy, right? I remember his dad, who was an economist, taught him something. He said, figures don't lie but liar's figure, right? 
Um, and I learned this as a, as a financial advisor. In fact, it, it only became apparent to me three years in because you know it was right after Y2K, the market was starting to recover and people were a little gun shy by getting in the market. Well, a guy came in, a product trainer, as they call him, right? Comes in and tells people, he's like, okay, guys. And he's asking all these financial advisors, like, all right, if you have $100,000 and you lose 50%, what, how much money do you have now? And all of us, you know, our brilliant financial minds said $50,000, right? We can do simple math. And he's like, great. Now, $50,000. Now, what's the rate of return you need to do to get back to where you were? And we all said 50%. All of us, 100% of us said 50%. He goes, wrong. Is 50% on 50,000 is only $25,000. That only gets you to 75,000. You're still short 25,000. So it's not 50%. He's like, it's actually 100% to get back to zero. So he said, look at this, guys. Minus 50 is year one. Year two is plus 100 if you want to try to get back to zero. So minus 50 plus 100 is 50. And I'm taking you back to our little, you know, sixth grade, seventh grade math class, right? 50 divided by two years means you have an average rate of return of 25%. And, and we were like, what, what, what really? And, and I remember like some of us in the office started like looking back from 1995 to 2005, looking at actual and average. And, uh, and the reason he was saying this, because he's saying, well, here's a new product you can sell. It's indexed and there's a floor. So you don't have to worry about losing money in the market, but there's a cap. So you don't make all the money in the market either. Right? So he starts introducing this concept. And we realized that from 1995 to 2005, even though the market was like the best upswing that we had seen, we would still made more money, not losing any because that average and actual were wrong. Once you have a negative year in the market, average and actual are no longer the same. So I run it like, Hey, let's, what was the S and P 500 30 years ago today? Let's compare that to the S and P 500 now. And then I'll put it into a compound interest calculator to say, what was that actual rate of return? That's where that number came from. I was like, Oh, we invested, you know, that much money, like based on the SP 500 30 years ago and, you know, in uh, 1991, what is, makes that SP 500 today that same number? And you'll find it's between like eight and 9%. Usually it's like seven to eight, but with all this huge inflation we've had in the stock market, it's now shot up over 8%. So that's the thing is that you got to be careful because, you know, you start putting that into cal- calculator. I used to put people's, you know, numbers in 12%, right? I'd say 12%. That's what small cap stocks have done, right? That's what's going to happen. Well, 12%, you compare that to eight, right? Or eight and a half. Or as I compared, I showed an example with Dave Ramsey, you know, your next door neighbor over there in Tennessee. You know, Dave, he, uh, he actually like had a tweet, a Twitter tweet that I, I got a screenshot of that says, if everybody saves $100 a month, you know, save $100 a month at 12% for 40 years, you'll have $1.176 million. Everyone should retire a millionaire is what Dave Ramsey said. The funny thing is, is one, I did the math. Actually, it wasn't 1.176 million. Um, it should have been 979,000. So even Dave Ramsey did bad math. We weren't quite a millionaire. But secondly, what if you only earn 7% net of fees from the mutual funds and everything else, not including taxes, right? Because there's still taxes to be paid. We're, we'll put that aside. If you get 7% on that same money, the 100 bucks a month, you're now down to 370,000. So it's not 1.176, like Dave says, now it's like 370,000. You can imagine people's disappointment, and especially why so many people are now are entering retirement like baby boomers and soon to be Gen Xers, right? Like myself, moving to retirement saying, wait a minute, I save what they told me to save and it's not enough. I got to keep working. I got to keep saving more. It's not enough. It's not our fault. It's not the fault of us because we were just doing what everybody told us to do. 
it's the financial advisors giving bad overpromised, underdelivered assumptions, right? And that that's everything, you know, where and that remember, and that's after that's not included after tax. And my whole goal as a financial advisor was to save two million dollars and save a ton of money so then I can live on three percent. Because even if you got the same amount of money in stocks or mutual funds versus real estate, the difference is is what kind of income does it pay you? Because at two million dollars, you shouldn't be pulling out more than two or three percent. Don't believe the whole four percent rule that you hear people say with the fire movement. That was a rule we even questioned 20 years ago. So when you try to live off money, you should not be pulling out more than two or three percent so you don't get killed by inflation, right? You don't run out of money while you're alive. So let's just say it's three percent. We go high. Three percent of two million dollars was sixty thousand a year. I used to think 20 years ago, sixty thousand a year was a lot of money, right? Now it's not. But that was my goal. But that same $2 million, even if you only earned 10% rate of return from passive investments, just 10%, that's not 60,000 a year. And then you have to pay taxes on it, like in the stock market, right? Then you're left with like 45,000 a year if you're lucky. Instead, you're making 200,000 a year with the real estate side. And then you probably keep most of that because you're not paying taxes. So it's like, what do you want? 45,000 a year or keeping most of 200,000 a year? And then that's the big difference between them. That's why I think 401ks are the dumbest things ever, because even with the match, they don't really pay you that much in the grand scheme of compound interest. Yeah. You said two things there I want to touch on. One is that idea of average versus actual return. And I'm a guy that considers myself pretty decent with numbers. Like I count sheep at night and I do math equations to help me go to sleep at night. And I was dumbfounded when two years ago, somebody said that, hey, if you lose 50% and gain 100%, your actual return is zero before fees and taxes. And the mm-hmm. average return is 25. I'm, that's when I really started to question everything you see from an actual versus an average standpoint. Um, yeah. And then two, the 4% rule that you're talking about there, it's called the Trinity study. If no one's ever heard of it out there, um, the Trinity study says that you can live off of 4% for 25 years. It does not say forever. And I think that's one of the yes. things that the fire move movement misses, and I wish mm-hmm. they would do a better job explaining is theoretically, you can live off of 4% for 25 years or 30, maybe, but not forever. Yeah. And that goes back to the original point that I'd, I'd love that we agree with is that cash flow matters more than appreciation. Because yes. as long as you have inflated inflation hedged assets like real estate pr- positioning cash flow to you, you have the ability to increase the rent, increase your cash flow. And you're not pile, and you're not picking off that pile. That pile is not going down over time. Versus if you have a big accumulated lump sum of cash and you're pulling four percent of it, then that cash pile will start to dwindle over time. Especially if you have bad years in down markets on the first part of that. Yeah, that's so true. Chris, you wrote a book recently called Beyond Rice and Beans, which is a fantastic title that we were talking about beforehand. And in there, you talk about seven different ways that folks can um, find more cash flow in their overall uh, day-to-day activities or in their personal economy. Can you touch on maybe one or two of those that give us an example of kind of how we can start thinking outside the box and finding cash flow in our life? Definitely. Yeah. So the first one I always start with is the main point to begin with is track your money, right? It sounds so intuitive, you know, but it's true. Like most people don't track money. So tracking your numbers, right? Make sure you're actually accounting for money coming in and going out, not just going out. That's what every saver, you know, hyper saver hoarder does. They always look at what they're spending and they try to be cheap. I'm not saying that you don't want to live on rice and beans. We want you to actually enjoy your life, but track your money. And, And 
I guarantee if you just start tracking the money that's coming in and out, you don't have to create a budget. Just by doing that, you'll probably find at least 500 bucks a month. Like out of the 34,000 a year average that people find, it's usually like that. It's usually about, you know, five, at least 500 bucks a month just from tracking money. So start there. Um, for personal, use Mint. I like to use mint.com, but you can use spreadsheets. You can use whatever you feel good with. Um, business, I use QuickBooks, right? Um, so that's one. Uh, two, I would say like with debt, debt's an interesting one because you know people think it's an evil thing, but obviously if we talk about real estate, we love debt. We want to use it productively, right? Um, but you got to be a wise steward of it. You know, Somebody can be just like any weapon. You can use it to hurt yourself or you can use it to protect yourself and, and create more. Well, that's true with debt. Um, now, if you have debt, how do you know what's good and what's not? It's not just the type of debt, but it's also what the debt is doing to you. Because you want to have the lowest payment possible with, with whatever balance is. That that's the, creates the least stress. Most people think I got to pay it off fast. So they do the opposite. Like um, I have a, a client, I think I told you about this before, but I have a client in San Diego, right? His whole goal was in six years to be financially independent. But his goal to do that was save all he could, but then pay off all of his mortgages, pay off his home mortgage and pay off his duplex, right? And he said, hey, if I do this, if I keep doing what I'm doing, as long as nothing happens to me, and disrupts my financial progress, I'll be mortgage-free in six years, right? I said, well, what would that free up per month? 4,200 a month. Okay, about 50,000 a year. Okay, well, you can do that. But here's the thing is that with your mortgage, we could refinance it the way it is and save you about 1,200 bucks a month, right? Because he, he wanted to do like this aggressive 10 or 15-year mortgage, right? Try to pay it down faster. The problem is if anything happens to your income, you're in trouble. You don't want to do that. So I said, instead, let's refi it a longer. In fact, we should probably do a cash out refi. Even if it costs you a thousand more dollars a month, you'll get 400,000 to play with. I'm sure we can make you more than a thousand bucks a month with 400 grand, right? Um, and then also he had another property that wasn't producing either. It was $200 a month profit, but it had 700,000 of equity. So the return on equity was like, you know, 0.3%, right? Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about that too. But in any case, I mean, the thing is like, you know, when I look at debt, like I want to try to refinance and make it as long as possible. And I use an index I call the cash flow index. And so what I do is I take the balance of that specific loan divided by the minimum monthly payment, right? So say, for example, you got a $10,000 car loan and a $10,000 credit card. Now, if you're Dave Ramsey, you're going to say credit card, like you won't even question it. You'll say credit card, pay it off, right? And then pay off the car. Even because you know, you'll say, oh, it's lower interest, right? All that stuff. Ignore the interest rate. The interest rate is just there to deceive you because that's it, just like financial institutions with mutual funds, banks do the same thing with interest rates. That's not the real stressor. The real stressor is what's the payment, right? Just like we said earlier. So what I do is I take that balance divided by the minimum payment. So say, for example, that that car loan, $10,000 was 500 a month. Now let's say that credit card was $10,000 balance at 200 a month. Now here's the thing. From a common sense standpoint, which one creates more stress, 500 a month or 200 a month, right? 500, right? We don't want the $500 a month payment. So regardless, even if it's a 4% interest rate, doesn't matter. We want to get rid of that $500 a month. If you do the math on it, the cash flow index on the car is a 20. By the way, if anything that's low interest, like mortgages, cars, student loans, those kind of things, I don't try to pay anything extra towards them. I wait until they're at least below a 20, and then I pay them off with one check at that point, if I can't refinance like a house, which I'll probably just keep refinancing anyways. Um, but with a credit card, you know, divide that 10,000 by 200, it's just 50. 
So the lower the index, the more you want to pay it off. The higher, the better, the more you want to keep it. So that's the key is that I always try to do that. Mortgages, I want them to be at least 200. So if your mortgage balance is 400,000, you want that payment to be 2,000 or less, especially right now with low interest rates, right? HELOCs, I want those to be about 300. So if you get a 300,000 HELOC, you should only be paying about 1,000 a month, right? Or give or take. So that's the kind of thing that I aim for is always going for that, you know, one refinance the highest index, which means the lowest payment possible. But if I'm going to pay off anything, pay off that lowest index first and then roll it up to the next one. Yep. And how you got started on that track too, was this concept of ROE or return on equity. And it's something that I've really switched my mindset and the way I invest over the past year. I used to be so focused on cash on cash. I put a hundred thousand dollars into this. What is it making me today? It's growing over time. That's great. But what I left was a bunch of dead equity out there. And so I had Mm -hmm. my coach talk to me about that. He's like, Hey, you own this triplex. It's got $150,000 on the note left, but it's worth 350. What could you be doing with that 200,000? Does it make sense for you to go take that $200,000 and deploy it somewhere else or go pull it out at 2%, 3% and pump it into something that's making 10%. Then all of a sudden you're arbitraging the difference. And that's when I really started understanding like debt is not a bad thing if you use it in the correct way. Uh, especially if you are investing it in something that's paying down the debt on the back end. Exactly. That return on equity is one of the biggest places I find money leaks for, for real estate investors, right? Because especially if they're on the West Coast, I mean, anybody on the West Coast, the return on equity sucks, right? Um, I like to look out towards the Southeast, more like in your neck of the woods, right? You know, I, I love that my Memphis property in the last three and a half years has done like a 300% total return. I mean, no financial advisor can compete with that. I'm sorry. Um, even with the way the market's been, which has been awesome. You know, um, you know, Southeast, Midwest, those are great areas, but everything on the Western half of the U S like where I am, it's horrible. And, and just like that guy, I mean, 700,000 of equity and he makes 200 bucks a month. In reality, he should take that, that seven, 700,000 should be making him closer to six or 7,000 a month, not 200 a month. Right. Yep. But again, he was so focused on paying down the debt and then he would be free and then here's a funny thing. Remember, he wanted that he wanted to pay those off in six years to make forty two hundred a month, but just by doing what we talk about the refinance and then investing it, right, mm-hmm. making about you know two or three thousand there plus another six thousand or so a month on the other side, I'm like um, you can actually make you know net even with the mortgage payment and everything, we could still probably get you to the point of about eighty thousand a year at least eighty thousand a year um, more than what you have right now. You know, even close to a hundred thousand a year now versus. 50,000 in six years. Like, and if you reinvest that hundred thousand a year, and then that starts building up to where now it's 110,000 next year, 125,000 a year after that, 135, 150,000, but like you'd be well over a hundred thousand a year in six years versus just 50,000. Yep. Yep. He's like, Oh, but I can't do it. Cause the saver in me doesn't want to, you know? Yep. Yep. (laughs) And how much more abundantly can you live? How much more intentionally can you live knowing that you have more streams of income coming in or larger chunks of, uh, income coming in. Um, exactly. Chris, I want to ask you one thing. We were nerding out right beforehand. I'm an Ironman endurance athlete. You mm-hmm. recently qualified for Boston. Congratulations. That is definitely on my list at some point and ran a sub three hour marathon, which is just unbelievably quick. Um, my body can't move that quick just yet, <laughs> but maybe you could tell us, um, I've learned a ton about investments and setting goals and being consistent and all those sorts of things, not just doing one big activity, but doing smaller things every single day to achieve a goal like an Ironman or a marathon, any best practices or tips or things you learned from being uh, an endurance athlete and 
maybe we can convert one of our listeners out there to uh, running a marathon and, and seeing the goodness there. I mean, like how it relates to investing or just being an endurance athlete in general? It, any of or all. You know, because they are kind of, you know, I think principles are the same. Principles of health also apply to principles of money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I, I, I wasn't great. I mean, I remember 14 years ago, I was 30. I ran my first full marathon and it was the most horrible experience ever. Like I cramped up at mile 20, um, you know, because I was ignoring advice I got from my friend who had ran like 10 or 12 of them previously. He's like, yeah, make sure you stop at the aid stations. Make sure you drink that Gatorade or Powerade, right? Like do that. And I, at, for, at first I was like, oh, I'm good. I'm not really thirsty. And you know, I'm just gonna take water. I don't need sugar. So I just drank water only. My electrolytes crashed and I was in horrible, horrible shape, right? So if anything, I learned that also applies investing is, you know, one, you got to listen to people that actually have experience. Um, two, what's helped me even go beyond that, because I was about a five hour marathon, right? I've since gotten a little bit better, but definitely having the right team around me is what I learned the best is, you know, nutrition is good. Knowledge is good, uh, but you definitely have to have the right team. And that applies to money and investing, right? Like money and investing, you got to have the right team around you. You got to have the right people in place that give you the right advice, CPAs, attorneys, you know, having the right financial people there too, the right connections in the real estate game. If you're trying to do pass investments, you have the right deals and things coming at you that allow you to be able to build your wealth the best, you know, and having that kind of guidance and still having the knowledge, you know, be able to do those things and apply it. And then just keep putting into practice, just have that patience over and over, persevere, keep learning, keep going, keep applying the same thing. And and sometimes it's, it's a huge patience game, right? Like when I tell some of my clients, I'm like, you, you, know, you just got, maybe they did their first few real estate deals, you know, even if it's passive, they're like, okay, cool. Another 30,000 a year is coming in. Now what? I'm like, now we wait. <laughs> you take that 30,000 and you reinvest it for the next year. So then that next year could be 33 or 34,000. And then yep. we'll do it again. And eventually because of return on equity, we'll sell some properties and then we'll, you know, reposition into new ones. And then that'll bump up to like, you know, 60,000 a year or whatever it might be. Right. And, and just doing those things, just kind of repeat over and over. And, and just like when my training, if I would have just given up after that first marathon, I've, I've never have been where I am today and never dropped 30 pounds eventually and lighten the load a little bit. So it didn't hurt me as much and, and, uh, and have like the right people on my team that help me do everything I'm doing. So that's the key is with anything with money, health, everything is having the right team of people around you to support you. And then taking that knowledge and using it, applying it and doing it with perseverance and patience. Yep. And I, I love that part specifically, because that's the thing I've learned with endurance athletes or endurance athletics is you will never do one workout that prepare you for a marathon or an Ironman <laughs> triathlon or anything like that. I wish and you just have to do over and over and over again. And if you miss or mess up or miss a workout, don't try to double it and do it the next day, just continue on the path. And so when you think about investing, like, I talked to some friends that are, you know, I invest in a single family home and I get $500 a month in cash flow, And they're like, Oh, that doesn't excite me. And I'm like, no, but what excites me is when you get 20 of those things picking off passive income and you don't get 20 until you do one until you do two until you do Mm -hmm. three and on and on. So a lot of similarities out there. I hope somebody listening is going to sign up for their first marathon or Ironman from, from listening to us talk about all this greatness. By the way, I'll tell you the last year, like a lot of my progress happened with an app called run with Hal, um, like H a L not the guy from 20, you know, 2001 in space odyssey, you know, not the (laughs) one that kills you, but although sometimes the workouts feel like they do, but I'll tell you that app, like just having that accountability, like when people are like, Hey, you want to meet up for breakfast? I'm like, 
yeah, but just so you know, I have a 10 mile run scheduled that day. I have to do it because my app told me to, because <laughs> like, yep. I, I treated that seriously and it, and it works. That consistency really does pay off. I, and that's, so you bring up this thought of coaching and, um, I have a coach for my endurance athlete stuff. And I agree because it's like, I can't let him down knowing that he put that workout mm-hmm. in and who will see it and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I have the discipline to do it, but sometimes I don't. And just yeah. knowing that he's looking at it helps. And so I went and hired a, a money coach and a real estate coach this past year. And we do something like a weekly review. And even though I was doing some sort of that by myself, I wasn't doing it consistently and disciplined enough. And if nothing else, having him do weekly check-ins and weekly accountability has helped my growth tremendously from there. So anybody out there that's looking to kind of take their, their skills to the next level with anything, I would encourage you to look at some sort of coaching or accountability partner. I agree. 100%. Well, Chris, this has been fantastic. I want to shift this now to our last five questions. We're calling these the five toppings. Um, (laughs) Our first one is what is your favorite book or what's a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? You know, one that a big paradigm shift for me um, was a book called uh, The Pumpkin Plan, right? Uh, By Mike Michalowicz. That one, it's interesting. He did Profit First, which most people know him from that. But the pumpkin plan is fascinating because it takes those, you know, those prize winning pumpkins you always hear about that they grow to be humongous news, you know, type of items. Well, they talk about how they buy specific seeds from like Newfoundland, right. Or Nova Scotia, wherever it is, and then they plant these seeds. They might pay a hundred thousand bucks for these seeds. They plant them and then they start creating the runners, you know, and they start chopping off the smallest pumpkins until only the largest pumpkin remains. And if that vine feeds the whole thing. And I've seen how that applies in business. I've seen how it applies even in investing, right? It's, it's starting to really feed that one thing, you know, what's that most productive thing you could be doing and focusing on that. And that was a game changer in my business. You know, it was a game changer in how I viewed even like investing, right? Because some people are like, I want to be diversified. I want to invest in 50 different places. Like, no, that's ridiculous. You can invest in three or four and be much more focused than investing in 50 and probably make more money and be safer, right? So um, that that's a great book. I was reading this article on Warren Buffett today that talked about that. Like you can actually reduce your risk knowing, knowing that you're making these sizable bets into uh, a, a single asset or a single company versus diversifying out because it yeah. forces you to be more stringent on your thought process and discipline and focus on that thing versus having 500 different stocks out there. So I'm gonna have that's to check right. that out. I, I That's a concept I'm still trying to learn and implement myself. So I have to go check that one out. Yeah. Um, the next one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things you do every single day. What is something that you do every single day? I do a morning routine. Um, I, fo- I call it the three E's. You know, there's exercise, education, and enlightenment, right? Um, so of course, the exercise we've talked about a little bit, you know, I try not to run every day, although it's probably five days a week I am running, but, uh, but always some sort of exercise, right? Something to at least wake the body up. Even if it's a Sunday, which is my day off, I'll still at least go for a walk just to try to wake up, um, do like prayers of gratitude. I'll do that. You know, when I'm working out, unless it's a really hard workout and I can't breathe. So I may not do much there, but afterward I'll be gratitude that it's over. And I can be giving, you know, other gratitude, you know, items I can list off. But doing something like that, like counting my blessings, you know, journaling, you can do that, you know, reading scriptural text or wherever it might be, um, you know, education, you'd be listening, you know, to, e- you know, ebooks, wherever you can be listening to this or not ebooks, I guess it'd be like audiobooks, right? Yeah, yeah. Audiobooks, podcasts, you know, YouTube, whatever it might be that you like to do, just trying to, you know, read up on things, you know, or, or listen to things that will help in, enhance your education and help you get better at whatever area you're trying to improve upon. So just doing that every single morning is 
even when I was going through that, that rough time, right. During the last recession, that was one thing I, I did because I knew I didn't have to pay money for it. It was the one thing I do to get, at least start the day off with a win, even though I felt like a loser during that period of time, it was the one way I could win at the beginning of the day and help, you know, propel me to dig out of that hole. Yeah. I think all of us at, at some point in 2020 went through a little funk period. I know <laughs> I had my little funk period and I started implementing a morning routine and it just felt good because one, I was doing a commitment to myself and two, it felt like I could control whether I did that or not. And the, yeah. the world that was falling around all over me and I couldn't feel like I could control anything. It was the one thing I could control. And it's, yes. it's changed my life in my morning. I mean, if you want to win the year, win the quarter, if you want to win the quarter, win the month, if you want to win the month, win the day, if you want to win yeah. the day, win the morning. Um, so it's, mm -hmm. I completely agree. Um, our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? The best piece of advice was understanding that dollars follow value, right? And it's not just dollars following value, but value follows value, right? Because dollars is just a representation of value anyways. But understanding that the more you give, the more you can receive and, and really trusting that principle. Like when I realized that it was a formulaic principle, not just a nice do-gooder type of thing that naive people say, but, you know, but in truth, really the people in the world screw you over. It's a scarcity world. But I realized the world was abundant and that there was more than enough, uh, everything, opportunities, relationships money, resources, time, everything. Then all of a sudden it became about how to create a win-win for everybody. And so when I learned that dollars finally value created, that's actually when right before it proceeded, before I was able to get out of the rat race the first time was then it was like, as I obsessed over that question, which is why I felt, oh, I can go and have this guy do the paperwork for me because it's creating a win for him. And it is kind of a win for my clients because I'm not doing the paperwork now and it's a win for me for sure. Uh, but then everybody was happy. And, and realizing that you create this win-win-win world, it just creates this, this something that's just really life-altering. Life I love it. I love it. Um, our fourth one is, what's the thing you're most proud of in your life? You know, I would say just not giving up, you know, just persevering, you know, because almost everything, you know, I remember uh, I read a book, Three Feet from Gold, during 2009, you know, right when I was about to pull out of some of the stuff I was in. And it was a long year and a half or so that I was going through and three feet from gold. A lot of those stories, if you ever, if you haven't read it, it's great it's by Sharon Lecter and Greg Reed. And, um, but in that book, uh, they talked about a lot, a lot of people, whether it's like Trent Cathy with Chick-fil-A or all these real life people, it's like the thing can grow rich for the 21st century. And a lot of people kept saying it only took me 10 years to become an overnight success. Right. And I, I remember thinking, wait a minute, like, why am I so you know, miffed about a couple of years in the grand scheme of things, in the big picture, is this, are these few years really going to be that big of a deal? Um, but who I become in the process is a big deal. So I started to really understand like, you know what, I'm going to submit, I'm going to let go of everything. And so that was for me, a big, a big shift, you know? And so um, I think that persistence, that was the one thing that I'm most proud of is I didn't give up because almost every good thing that's happened since then has been for me not giving up. Yep. And the lessons you learned through your struggles. Mm -hmm. Um, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh man, <laughs> that is such a hard question. Cause I don't think there'd be anybody, but I mean, I hate to say this cause I want people to think it's cliche, but I'm really dead serious when I say this, but I would say Jesus, like mm -hmm. seriously, like I would really be interested to know, like beyond what, what the Bible says, like really as a person, what was he like? What was it like to be around him? How would he respond to situations? 
Like any, how would he be with ice cream? Like, would he like yeah. get little, you know, little ice cream, you know, drooling a little chocolate chip going on his beard or something? Like, I would love to just know how human he really was, you know, and and understand that. So I think for me, that would just be the most fascinating person to to be with, even though I would love to eat ice cream with a lot of people, but he would definitely be one to be like, I'd be curious just to see what that would be like. Yeah. Maybe he could turn the wine into uh, sprinkles or heat bars <laughs> to add a little extra to your ice cream. That's right. You're like, can you turn these strawberries into chocolate chunks? That'd be yep. cool. Right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> well, Chris, this has been a fantastic conversation from uh, stocks and bonds in real estate to uh, cash flow and appreciation to Boston marathons. If our listeners wanted to reach out and learn more about you or connect with you, where's the best place we could send them? Yeah. You can either go to moneyripples.com. We have lots of education on there about like passive income and how to do that. Even like infinite banking, like how to get it, pay you twice on your investments. Um, or you can even go to our, web, our, our, our show, the Chris miles money show you can find on iTunes, YouTube, or anywhere for that matter. Yeah. Well, we'll have to have you back on for the infinite banking piece. I have a bunch of notes on it and a couple of questions I want to ask you about it, but we didn't get a chance to. So hopefully we can entice you to come back on and, and talk to us more about that. You bring the ice cream and I'll bring the infinite banking. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.